Hello and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Hello and welcome to episode two. This week, I chat to Alex Lazoo from Truva, an online store that brings you beautiful homewares from the best independents around the world, making it easy for you to discover just the right piece for your home. I absolutely loved chatting to Alex in this open and thoughtful episode. We talked about navigating the relationship between three co-founders, how Alex didn't start as the CEO, but took the role just three months shy of a global pandemic why he thinks fundraising is not to be celebrated, but is just an essential part of business growth. We chatted about the pressure founders are willing to take on and how Truva is helping independent shop owners grow globally. Alex encouraged me to obsess on understanding what real value is in your business and to hone in on that with laser focus. Alex is brilliant and I really hope you enjoy listening to his story. I'd love to jump straight in and start sure. by you telling me a bit more about what Truva is and what the brand mission is. Sure. So I'm, I'm Alex. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Truva. Um, our mission at Truva is to find beautiful, inspiring products from all around the world that reflect all sorts of styles and aesthetics, right? So we're thinking more in horizontals rather than in verticals. For us, it's just important to have a selection of products where every time you come back, you can get inspired, you find something new uh, and something that fits what you represent as an individual as well. But on the other hand, you should be able to buy everything that you see as well and get it to your home and actually uh, either decorate your space or, or wear other things that you find. So that's, that's what we are about. We are curating the world's inventory. That's, that's our mission. And the way that we've been doing this so far is by finding the representatives of tastes um, in uh, physical spaces. Uh, so concept stores, independent boutiques, 
um, places that are still run by the owners that have a life's mission of finding the latest brands in minimal, for example, or like in Scandinavian design, and then buying those products and then selling them to to the people in their area, their neighborhood, their country. So we're trying to open those up uh, and really create a space for you to be able to get inspired. That's that's effectively what we're doing. And so from a business model perspective, it's it's a marketplace, essentially. You mm-hmm. are allowing and giving a platform to independent sellers who perhaps otherwise wouldn't be able to access your consumer base. Exactly, yeah. It's a... It's, it's a platform business that supports a marketplace setting. Um, so when you think about e-commerce right now, in order to have an online shop, you need to maybe set up a Shopify website or something equivalent, but then you have to set up your inventory management. You have to figure out how to market your products online. You have to figure out how to do logistics. Um, you have to figure out how to do customer support and all sorts of other things that come with trying to sell stuff online, right? And a lot of times when you're just an individual, you just don't have the volume or the economies of scale, basically, to be able to ship something to another country for like three euros. You know, like that, a lot of that is just unlocked by having many people coming together. Um, and that's where Truva comes into play. We have about 1,000 shops across 13 countries in Europe now. So we are very effective in building the technology, but also unlocking those economies of scale for people to be able to sell across border and within their borders as well. So Truva launched in 2015. Mm-hmm. What were you doing before 2015? Yeah, so the, the holding company, Street Hub, uh, exists since 2013. Um, so that's when we we effectively were thinking about, okay, there's like this physical space. Uh, you can use Google Maps to find different spaces. You can use OpenTable to book a, a, a seat at a table. But what happens with physical products? Like, where do you go when you want to discover physical products that exist in the space? Um, and back then there weren't that many options, right? And most of the bigger retailers as well had very low stock accuracy. They still do have that. So our thesis back then was like, okay, there must be a proposition that you can build around inventory that sits in the physical space right now that gets unlocked and anyone can buy from anywhere. So we spent a couple of years trying out hyper-local propositions, uh, deploying iBeacons in shops and trying to get marketing messages to people that were working, walking around the shops. Uh, we tried on demand. We tried a bunch of stuff. Um, and then in 2015 is when Truva was born. Where we were like, okay, actually there's this segment that represents this type of aesthetic and style um, that everyone should have access to. Right? Like if I'm sitting in Athens, I should still be able to get the taste and the style that exists in Berlin or like in London or in in um, Copenhagen. You know, like those kinds of tastes shouldn't be locked down in the local space. I should be able to have access to them. So that's where Truva came from and how we basically started building it up from there. Before that, I'm a, I'm a software engineer. So I studied computer science in Germany and then did a master's at the LSE in London. So essentially you're helping businesses with globalization because you're enabling them to see out of just their geography with that in mind what are some of the barriers that exist for those businesses is it a lack of is it literally a lack of funds or is it lack of sort of tech 
uh, evolution or what, what is the um, sort of problem that you're solving for them that they, they face? So if you take every step that a retailer has to take to even gain attention, right? So, you know, marketing, for example, paid marketing. Um, when you have a very small budget, you don't get the level of visibility uh, and you can't hire the expertise to really become very, very good at marketing either locally or internationally as well. Then as you progress, right, when you actually um, want to create a strong enough consumer proposition and compete with the bigger guys in terms of customer experience, you need a certain volume to be able to charge lower shipping fees, right? You can't just charge 10, 15 quid to send an item that is 50 pounds, right? When you don't have the volumes, it's very, very hard to do that. And if you don't have the technology to integrate with the different carriers, then you can't apply smarter ways of getting the best deal from uh, the carrier based on where the parcel is supposed to go. So across that entire supply chain, volume, economies of scale, and technology are the things that you really want to have optimized. And in order to have those optimized, you need a certain level of capital, but you also need people that have the expertise and can focus purely on those steps. Um, and that's effectively what we do, right? So um, what we have been able to do is enable them to manage their inventory better, resupply products that they were setting up very quickly, utilize our logistics, utilize our customer support levels, um, and, and generally create a better experience. At the end of the day, all of these guys are competing with the big guys. You know, you're competing with gaining attention that the big guys have because of the scale that they have. Um, so uniting them and getting everyone together uh, helps us create that size uh, that makes Truva front of mind for the customers as well. So it's effectively a numbers game. And you mentioned that you incorporated a holding company two years prior to actually launching Truva. Was that um, because that's how long it took you to create the kind of consumer-facing brand that we now see as Truva? Or was it, what was the reason for that two years pre-launch? So we, we, had, we had a thesis around the market and uh, there was just so much physical inventory available offline but no one was really digitizing that, right? So we had a, a general thesis around an opportunity or a gap that existed in the market, but we had no clue what exactly we could build on top of that in order to create a proposition that people actually wanted. Um, so those two, two and a half years were constant experimentations with propositions like, can we create enough buzz uh, for people to walk down the street and get a marketing message and then pop into a shop. And will people do that? Is that the type of behavior of the future of retail? You know, like those kinds of propositions, we didn't know. We, we knew that, uh, you know, Uber was becoming very strong back then. Okay, maybe there's an on-demand play here. You know, like we, we were trying different things out. Um, and then by analyzing the results, but also by just gaining a bit more experience in kind of like, okay, the space. That's when we, we really saw clearly the opportunity with Truva and like really focusing on independent concept stores, uh, lifestyle boutiques, premium lifestyle space. Like there's a lot, of, a lot of inventory breadth there and a lot of value to be harnessed if you can open that up. 
a lot of business advice is about choosing an idea and getting on with it and not sitting with it for too long for you in that time was it really just like proving the market were you like we have to have this time to do all this research because otherwise we'd be launching something that had multiple holes in it is there is there sort of advice in there for someone who's starting a company but isn't actually you know able to put something online as a presence straight away sure I think you know in those two and a half years we launched two mobile apps we launched e-commerce websites we we launched a bunch of different prototypes um we spent a lot of time in the streets as well right like just talking to people and trying all sorts of tests to understand okay what drives value here um i think the learning there was that we probably spent too much time trying out different propositions and using features as the selling point you know like we built an app that was purely for click and collect so you could only do click and collect right you would get access to hundreds of shops in london and do click and collect click and collect is a feature it's not a proposition as such right and so i think if there's a few learnings there it's like obsess on understanding what is real value Like how are you creating, are you actually creating real value for these people? Are you changing something fundamentally? Or are you just trying to take your thinking of what the future might be and project it onto people? And then you hold on to every single proof point that you might find that, uh, <laughs> and then you create your own little echo chamber, right? Um, so that, 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 in that phase, I think is the most important thing, like ruthless about really investigating what, what adds value. Um, but on the other hand, I do think it takes time. If, if it's not something that comes naturally or organically through your experiences or a certain passion that you had before that you're not turning into a startup or whatever, and it's more driven by a market gap where you're trying to understand what is the sort of behavior that I actually need to change without necessarily being that person myself, then it just takes more time um to to really put your finger on it and figure out what it is because we hear a lot about how um loads of founders start their passion projects and they're doing something that they love and they you know were you were you passionate about uh enabling independent stores to sell globally or was it you know you it sounds more like you sort of thought actually there's a gap and an opportunity here to use you know collective experience to to, to make a difference So the yeah, very good question. The it started off as a there's a gap in the market. There's this thinking around mapping offline inventory, which I was really interested in. And there's this concept of independence and uniting them against the bigger guys. Like that that kind of like how do you use technology to enable individuals to create the value that traditionally only bigger businesses were able to create. Like that, that concept was something that interested me from day one. Um, did I foresee that this was going to be around independent lifestyle and, and boutiques and like that kind of like premium lifestyle space? I didn't even know what that meant, right? Uh, but over time, When you get that far into it, where you're obsessing about how you can solve this and how you can create value, um, 
you do end up making this a passion of yours, right? Like I am absolutely obsessed in surrounding myself with beautiful things now. I, <laughs> it's, it's a new, like finding those things where you wake up in the morning and you look at the beautiful woven laundry basket and you're like, damn, that was a good purchase. You know, like that, that was a good one. Even though it's full of laundry, you know, like it's beautiful. Uh, so surrounding yourself with those kinds of things, I think you start understanding that you don't need many things, but those purchases that you do make and you surround yourself with do have an impact on yourself, on the people around you and so on and so forth. So um, I've become a lot more conscious about that, I guess, uh, than what I was before. And we, talk, we, we hear a lot about the idea of conscious consumerism. You know, in many ways, consumerism is um, the antithesis of sustainability. But do you think it means more because you're putting money into the pockets of, smaller local businesses that probably really depend on on that custom do you think in addition to sort of what the product does for you in your physical space and how it impacts you do you think there's an extension with your customer base that they feel the sort of impact of the purchase more Uh, i think i would even flip it around to be honest i think there's this virtuous cycle where if you think about the types of places or shops or people that think about sustainability, think about ethical sourcing, put that in the forefront of their purchasing activity and their buying behavior. It's these kinds of shops. Like by default, these guys are the ones that they will obsess about where is this thing coming from? What materials are being used? Um, What's the story behind this product? Like this is a behavior that they just naturally have. And also when you talk to them, like, it's part of their job to go and find brands that they identify themselves with, that have the same ethical standards that they have. So just by that, you end up browsing a selection of inventory that already has passed through the quality thresholds of these people, right? And I think that is very important because you do end up making more informed choices even though you may not be necessarily yourself much more informed about every single purchase you make. So it's, it becomes like a virtuous cycle of, of ethical consumerism without necessarily imposing more um, work on the consumer themselves uh, to educate themselves about everything they buy. Um, so I think about it more in that way. I'm like, well, the smaller the retailer and the more independent they are, the better also they get the pulse earlier from the customers that they do care about ethical standards and the more they also care about the brands that they're sourcing from and and the products that they sell as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, We, you're a co-founder, you have uh, um, others in the business. Is it two others or one other? So we started off as three, uh, three co-founders and uh, at this point, uh, there are NEDs on the board, uh, but I'm I'm the only active one in the business, I guess. Okay, so you you squeezed out your co-founders. Uh, so so you started you started as a CTO in the business, right? Which presumably lent you know was as a result of the experience that you had before. You then became CEO just in time for a global pandemic, which is perfect. Um, Tell me how that came about. How did you, was it always your 
aspiration to be the CEO or was it sort of, it just sort of ended up that way or how, how did that dynamic manifest? <laughs> yeah, for sure. good question. Um, the, so in terms of the journey as co-founders and so on and so forth, I think, you know, there's life changes uh, over the years. You know, we've been doing this for about nine years now. Um, and it's a tough journey. It goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And uh, the only people that you can truly rely on in that journey are the people that you have around you, your co-founders and the people that are very close to you in the business as well. So, and that is beautiful in, in itself, right? Because you do have... And you're part of an adventure where you can rely on certain people that are around you and build those kinds of bonds. And at Truva, I think we really kind of went through all of that, you know, like all the ups and all the downs that you could possibly have. Um, so uh, it was it was a great journey. Now, at some point, it just naturally evolved um, that, like, okay, um, I was going to take over um, uh, at the helm of the business. Uh, but obviously with my co-founders close to me still, right? Like, um, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's such a long journey together. You don't, you can't, uh, just say, okay, it's done. Um, I never, I, I was always interested in us co-founders as well. We didn't go down the line of saying, okay, you're only dealing with this part. You're only dealing with that part. And I'm only dealing with this part. It was always like, okay, when I wake up in the morning, I worry about X, but overall, I care about the business as much as I care about the technology or the operations or the marketing side of things. So it's like, okay, what do I worry about when I wake up in the morning? But then overall, the business vision and the direction of that is something that we care about all of us. Um, and so that lends itself well when you're starting a business straight out of uni, like you don't know that you want to be the CEO of a business or anything like that. Like, but as you go through that journey and you hone your skill more, like your specific skill, but you also start understanding everything else that falls within a business, um, you just get prepared for that journey as well to take over as a CEO at some point in time. And any, any one of us could have done that, right? Like it just happened to be me because of life. Uh, and I wanted it as well. So um, global pandemic was an, like a really, 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 really good battleground to, to, to be dropped into and be like, okay, now do you now figure that one out? Um, and I, I learned a lot uh, since 2009, well, end of 2019, I took over. 2020 was a, yeah, really interesting year because uh, it was like this keeping, you know, you have hundreds of shops that are closing down in the offline space. And then you have to figure out ways to keep them transactional so that they can pay the rent at the end of the month. But you as a business can also keep on paying the rent uh, or the, the, the cost that you have. And I think the team did an incredible job in, in really not just surviving, but thriving throughout that uh, time as well. Well, presumably there are times where different retailers experience different struggles for different reasons. But the idea that every single one of them would be closed or you know that they're probably also relying on you for a technological upgrade because that's a benefit of being on the platform but also presumably one of the things that they haven't necessarily been able to do so 
I mean, from an emotional perspective, uh, you know, depending on how how much you're sort of connected to the to the businesses, but was it was there an emotional toll of just constantly hearing bad news and shop shutting and empty units and people's livelihoods, you know, on the line? I mean, aside from like the impact on your business, which obviously you know it has its challenges, was there an emotional impact just from seeing that kind of devastation in the retail space? Yeah, I think the, the, what I discovered about myself and, and my team as well during that period was that there was almost like this flip of a switch, which was, okay, we need to do something about, like, this, this is, we can do something. It's not, we need, we can, like, we're in a position to solve this. Uh, when, we, when we first saw the shop shutting down in Italy, uh, I think it was early mid-February 2020, we're like, oh my God, like, th- this is real. Like, this is going to happen everywhere. So what do we do about it? Um, so you don't really have that time to reflect and, and think about all the, the things that rely on you being able to actually achieve this. And I think I, I'm a big believer in the resilience of the independent. Like, independents find a way to survive. Like, that is... Whether you're a startup founder or an independent business owner or whatever else, like you will find a way to survive because that's how you are wired up. Uh, whenever there's challenges, whenever there's a big shift, there's opportunity. So let's find the next gap that we can fill, right? Like that's how we that's how we think. So um, you know, the bigger toll is coming from one day to another. Everyone's remote. So how do you deal with that? Like, how do you make sure that you still get the pulse of the business, even though we're not together in an office? Um, you have to take hard choices because, like, your trading is getting exploded by everyone. So, like, what, what do you do? Um, and on the other hand, you have to ensure that you are keeping your supply up and ready to take uh, advantage of the consumer. Well, take advantage of uh, people wanting to buy online again, right? Like, so how do you do that as well? So there's so many different challenges at that point. You're just thinking about solutions. You don't really have that much time to reflect, I think. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's a hard year, isn't it? Because you can't, it's really difficult to think about growth or any, you know, every plan that's ever been created basically gets ripped up and, and thrown away. In that time, given that you're in, an, you know, you're in a new role as CEO, you've had changes with your founding team, um, and you've sort of stepped into a global pandemic. Where did you find information from? How did you mm. keep learning during that time? Did you have mentors, or you mentioned obviously, uh, you know, your board? Did, did, where did you sort of find information to help you navigate that? So there, there's, I'm part of a few groups of founders that definitely helped during that time to just understand what kind of challenges were those guys facing. And, you know, we some of those challenges were common, so how are they solving them? But it's the, for me, it was the point where like, okay, you learn by doing, you need to know exactly what you're going to try out and then figure out what went wrong and then try to do it better <laughs> the second time around. Like, it was a lot of tests and trialing. And, um, the only reason why we were able to do that was because of the team I had around me. Right? Like, I had to rely on my uh, C-level, my CEO, my CFO. I had to rely on 
my heads off of the department, but also on every single individual trooper as well. Like every single all hands that we did was a boost for me because I could see that they knew that it was getting hard, uh, but they weren't losing faith in me and the others to figure it out. So, you know, at the end of the day, no one had the, the answers. Like it was, everyone had questions. Some people tried a few things, you learn whatever you can from that, but at the end of the day, you just try things out and some of them worked out well, some of them didn't, and then we had to try again. And from a cultural perspective, you know, for anyone listening who's at the beginning of their journey, obviously all hands meetings are the entire business together. Did you, did, did the frequency of that change during COVID? Did you decide that you needed more moments to connect? And yeah. did you sort of, you know, was it a very strict agenda or was it very much like, we don't know what it's going to be like today. So we'll sort of see how, how did you manage that process? Yeah, it was. So first, first of all, like the, we were lucky in the sense that from like two, three years ago, we like from 2017, 18 onwards, we were quite conscious that, okay, we're now going to have a Lisbon office as well as a London office. So we need to start thinking remote first, right? So if basic, simple things that make a huge difference. So for example, if we have a meeting and at least one person is not physically present, everyone goes on their own devices because then we can make sure that everyone has the same kind of ability to partake in that discussion. You know, the worst thing you can have is five people sitting in one meeting room, another five people sitting in another meeting room, and the voice is all over the place, the sound, the quality is shit, like you can't really talk, and you just have a few very strong voices overtaking everything. So those kinds of basic, simple processes, or they're almost like cultural things, um, make it much easier to work remotely. So those, those we were lucky to already have in our toolkit. Um, but then what we paid a lot of attention on was like, okay, so how do we now, knowing that this is not going to be a couple of weeks, this is going to take longer, what are the types of things that we can do where you can at least try to build a little bit of that being togetherness? Like, for example, we did a chocolate tasting where we sent chocolates to everyone's home. And so there was just a specific time when we all went and there was like this person uh, telling us all about those chocolates. But you could actually taste the same thing with the other guys that were like miles away, right, in different countries. And I think a lot of those kinds of like escape, digital escape rooms, you, you can have online escape rooms now. That's, it's a lot of fun. Um, those kinds of things, I think, will persist into the future as well because they're just those. They're, they don't take that much time to organize, and they can create to a certain degree that feeling of togetherness. Um, and then, on the other hand, from a business perspective, we just made sure that uh, we had Monday and Friday check-ins and checkouts with the entire team. Once every few weeks, a we call it tea time, but basically a strategy session with the entire company uh, where we talk about the vision, where it's going and the current numbers and all that kind of stuff. So just keeping that information flowing and paying a lot of attention on people getting the message of like what's going on and where we're going. Um, yeah, those kinds of things. And our people and culture team did a fantastic job uh, like on, on that, really figuring out how to make that work. 
Yeah, because I guess, you know, everyone's trying to create some sort of equity in the business for, for the team. And, you know, we want people to be stakeholders in the business. Yeah. With that in mind, are you very open and honest with the whole team about numbers and directions yeah. so that they really understand that their job yeah. ladders up to something that's broader than just their remit? Yeah, for sure. I, I think for... I. You know, there's different management styles, there's different cultures, and no one culture or management style is better than the other. It, it depends on, are you hiring the right people that can thrive within that environment, right? And so for me, I have to give visibility over the numbers. Like, why? Because it's not about transferring the stress from myself to them when things are not going well and just enjoying, uh, transferring the enjoyment when things are going well, right? Like, it's not about that. It's about being honest and being clear right about this is what we said we're going to do this is where we are today this is what we believe the future looks like and these are the things that we're going to do in order to get there so then you have the opportunity to be frank with yourself and with us with yourself first and foremost do I want to be part of this journey or not and what I found at least from my experience so far is that the best results you get from people that actually understand and want to be part of the journey and the trajectory you're in. Uh, and where most of the miscommunications and the issues happen is when people aren't aligned with what the business is trying to achieve. Like when that is not clear, uh, and clarity is key here, then it's already a very big struggle to even get to that commitment to get to that journey together. So from my, from my perspective, is. Make sure you make it visible where you are. Make sure you communicate your numbers. Like we're all working towards those numbers anyway. There's no reason why not to. Um, and just be authentic. You know, like be authentic about what you believe. And people understand that. They can smell that from miles away. <laughs> if you're being authentic or not, it's something that someone can understand very quickly. Have there been moments in the last year and a half where you've had to... Um, sort of chair a meeting with the whole team and show up and be very motivating but secretly inside there's a sense of imposter syndrome or any doubt have you have you had to manage that in any part of your career but probably more specifically you know since you were took the role of CEO I have there been meetings where I felt you know, have there been meetings where I felt I wasn't being honest? No, never. Um, when, for example, we had to furlough a bunch of, like, a lot of, a big part of the team, uh, the way we did it was go in front of the team and say, guys, like, we're in a very difficult position. This is how we're going to try and solve it. This is what it will mean uh, for a big part of the team. Like, it's There's no hiding from that, right? Like, if I go off and say a bunch of stuff that isn't true, people will lose their faith in me, right? So I don't, I don't feel like there were any moments where I felt that I wasn't being honest. Have there been moments where I felt like, I hope I'm right? You know, like that. I know, I know that it's like, this is the vision. This is where I'm going. And I can, I can see the puzzle pieces. And I'm almost sure like it's going to happen. But I sure hope that it will happen the way I think it will happen because a lot of there are a lot of stakes against that. Yeah, of course. I think that's that's just part of 
being human, you know, like, uh, you can never be a hundred percent sure that something is going to work out. And, and you always hope that, yeah, okay, I got it right. Uh, so I did feel that sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Do you think that we've created as a society really unrealistic, um, parameters within which founders and CEOs have to operate do you think that there's a slight rose-tinted spectacles on the idea of these sort of fabulous lunches and you know ringing the bell and whatever else you know people conjure up um and actually that's misaligned with the reality of the kind of snakes and ladders that is running a business there's always going to be a discrepancy between the reality of the day-to-day versus those highlights you know and as a society we either choose the very low points so every CEO is a fraud uh, they take businesses down with them blah blah you know like all that kind of stuff or we take the big highlights you know because that's how we as humans get interested in things we're either intrigued by the very bad stuff or the very good stuff on the other side yeah, it's like when people slow down on the motorway to look at a car crash. It's like human nature. It, there is like this level of, yeah, there's, there's, there's what, what drives attention. And at the end of the day, social media is about driving, is about capturing attention. So the natural repercussion of that is that you will see those two different sides. Um, is that realistic or unrealistic? I think the key there is what impact does it have? Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that more people are going to try the journey out for themselves and see where it takes them? Fine. Like, that's amazing. You know, why not? I'd, I'd, I'd love to see more people going down that line. I mean, it creates more competition, um, but it also means that we're pushing innovation further. We're pushing the envelope further on creating high-value businesses, and it helps us evolve and maybe find out how we can create better businesses as well. Uh, from ethical and ideological standards as well. So if that is the consequence it has, and I do think to a certain degree it does have that consequence, then that's amazing. If the consequence is, though, that we divide society or we are um, killing diversity by only showing white guys ringing the bell, then that is a problem, right? So that, that's what we need to fix. Like, can we make sure that the picture we're creating of CEOs is diverse, the picture we're creating on CEOs is empowering every single person to think that that journey is possible and I want to try it. If that is what we're doing, then perfect. If that is not what we're doing, then that is what we need to work on. But saying, well, we're going to go away from this very high or very low point, uh, we're just going to lose attention and then no one is going to want to do that anyway. So I think it's, yeah. it's about massaging, well, massaging or right-sizing the message so that it applies to the principles that we believe in rather than changing the message altogether. Yeah, you're right, because it can be quite exclusionary if you're then just highlighting, you know, whether it's men or, you know, any any specific um, cohort within CEOs as a, as a board remit. Um, do you have a good relationship with social media? Do you personally use it? Obviously, as a, as a business tool, it has its merits, but what about you personally? Uh, business tool mainly. Personally, I, I stay in touch. I consume. I do not broadcast that much. Um, and that's more, I really... 
I'm intrigued by understanding how it works. I'm intrigued by seeing new trends. I'm intrigued by almost getting a pulse of both technology and society and how that is moving forward. Um, I don't like broadcasting that much what happens in my personal life. Um, that's just myself. How do you deal with competition? I guess maybe not looking at it online is, is the first point, but how do, you, how do you deal with competition? So for me, it's, it's a source of inspiration. Like competition is always a source of inspiration. Like it's, it's intriguing to see what a competitor does. It's intriguing to see how they're messaging what they're doing. Um, and then it's a source of inspiration of like, okay, what am I missing from my proposition that could potentially have that impact or what can I learn from them? So for me, it's like, it's, it's, it's really an opportunity to learn. And it's also a force to make us be better, right? Um, a world without competitors would be very, very boring. So, uh, sources of inspiration and a force to get better at what you're doing and to, to motivate your team and yourself to be better. Uh, in a in a constructive way and in a positive way, rather than oh my god, they're taking all the market. I'm scared and so on and so forth. May the best win. Yeah, I guess winning a race if you're the only competitor isn't as uh, isn't as much of an achievement as as sort of winning against other people. Then the question becomes: Is there even a race, or are you even running towards somewhere that <laughs> you could potentially win? Um, that, that's the that's more of the existential question you get then yeah. yeah but I guess that's you know a useful jumping off point to talk about the definition of success because you know generally for people who are entrepreneurial or run businesses there isn't really an end point in terms of your brain right like you're not gonna you know you might sell your business and there'll probably be some downtime because you've probably applied yourself in a certain way for a long period of time and you, you you know probably need a break but it's unlikely that you're going to sort of um hang up your boots at 35 and go and do nothing until you die um so there is this kind of insatiable quest for conquering and for achieving and for completing and that completion might be ringing the bell it might be a sale it might be a profitable business it might be creating something you can hand down to a generation you know all, all different um everyone has di different variations on, on what that looks like for you personally what does success look like? Because, you know, we're quite goal oriented as a, as a people. And I'm sure it was a goal to start a business and then to be the CEO of that business and then to raise money. You know, you, we sort of continually shift the goalpost as soon as we achieve. So for you personally, what is that definition of success? For me, it's the, yeah, first of all, I love seeing people using my product. Like when I create an experience and I, I see more and more people using that experience and then getting inspired by that and, and maybe using it in a different way than I first intended. Uh, that kind of stuff intrigues, like I, I find that beautiful, right? Because you inspire new behavior, you create a new flow that didn't exist before. And if you can then attach that to a an ethical kind of standard or a change in a fundamental kind of way of thinking, that's even more beautiful, right? Because that means that you're helping a certain set of people evolve from when they, where they were before uh, to where they're going now. So there's like this, you know, this fundamental satisfaction that you get as a creator 
uh, when you see people using what you've created and as business owners or like CEOs or whatever you want to call it, founders or whatever, we are creators at the end of the day, right? We create propositions and experiences and all that. And for me, that's always going to be the fundamental part of that, that drives me to do that next thing. Everything else is just like points in a game, you know, like raising funding, boom, a hundred points. You know, like uh, raising more funding, oh, 150 points. Getting to a team over 100 people, oh, 200 points. The points are just there to, to give you an understanding of, am I moving forward? Uh, minus a thousand points, I just lost half my team because I was an idiot. You know, like that kind of stuff. You understand whether if you're moving onwards or not. But the, the holy kind of the fundamental foundation behind that is this, is this experience of creating things that people use. I think that's that's... That's what will be driving me to do another one and another one and another one. You raised money for the business. So most recently a $22 million raise. How did you decide when you needed that money and was it always in the plan? Um, can you talk to me a little bit more about that process? Sure. Um, so with Truva, the holding company being Street Hub, from the very beginning, we raised venture capital funding. So in the first year, we raised around 750K from Index and Octopus and a few other VCs, right? So that was really early days. Six months in, no real product, straight away raised money. Um, and then, you know, expectations were set. We had to run against those expectations while we're still trying to understand what we were building. And then we raised more money to keep it alive and then more money and more money and more money. So this is the story of a, a startup that raised money really early, raised funds really early on, perhaps before it was even ready to, and then was in that loop of needing to raise more and more to hit that next milestone and, and keep that trajectory going. Um, and so when you keep that in the back of your mind, like we were caught in this cycle of needing to raise more funding to keep being able to continue with the business and move it forward. So it was very early on that we took that decision. So what you mean by that is that you raise an amount of money and then it doesn't quite cover you to make the jump up to the targets that are set against that money so you have to raise again to then be able to make that jump so that's the cycle that you're talking about so in this in at street hub and truba basically this is how it started right like it started in that way um and lots of learnings from that kind of experience and i'm not saying this is a bad experience or a bad example or whatever it is one example uh, of doing things and you have to be clear about what you're doing Right? Like you have to be clear that you're going into this type of game now, the high growth, uh, fast kind of cycle game, and uh, you need to exceed expectations in order to get to that next level. Uh, with the latest raise, we basically were able to get to a pretty good point uh, where we had more of an influence and a decision-making power over what we were going to do next. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, how, that's how that evolved. Um, yeah. If you're a young founder or founders looking for investment, there are obviously multiple different routes that you can take. There's also a lot of value in choosing investors that can potentially follow their money. You don't want to end up with a massive cap table. You want people who are really devoted 
to the business and want to help you grow. How do you know where to go and who to go to? Is it is it kind of talking to other people who've raised money? Is it hiring someone on your team who's got that experience? What's the um, kind of entry level advice about how to begin that journey? Yeah, I think it starts with, obviously you want to build up a network. You want to talk to other people, understand their experiences, other entrepreneurs that have raised cash, uh, investors that have put cash in other businesses. But all of that is with one goal to understand what do you want to do? By raising cash or raising capital is not a achievement or a milestone or whatever you want to call it. It is a function of, I want to get to from A to B. I want to get to B in this timeline. And how much control am I willing to give up? How much pressure am I putting, am I willing to put myself under? And how fast do I believe I can run to get to those goals without, with little capital, with a little bit more capital and so on and so forth. Like you need to understand first and foremost what you want to do. If this is a business, if this is the one and only business you will ever build in your life and you want to be doing this for the next like 30, 40 years, then arguably you will play it very differently than, okay, I really just want to, I, I see this thing, it's a land grab game, I need to expand very, very quickly, I need to accelerate, I need capital to do that, I need this much capital, and I know that I'm going to make it happen within this time period, right? Like, that's a very different story as well. So first of all, it's identifying where are you at? I like, are you still in the discovery mode and you need a bit of capital to figure out what's going on? Do you know what you want to be doing, but it's very long term and you want to, it's your baby and you want it to be your baby forever? Or are you the, okay, this is the thing, I'm doing it now, it needs to be 10 times bigger tomorrow. You know, first and foremost, decide which one you are and stop thinking about funding as a like as a as an achievement. It is it is a process. That's all it is, right? Um, and then from there on. It is a function of, I, I would always recommend finding, surrounding yourself with people that understand your vision, understand the industry you're in, understand the market you're in, understand the problem that you're trying to solve and the intricacies of that problem. Like, how long will it take? Is there enough conviction about the space and about what you're doing? Those kinds of things that like, are so important because when times are not going to be sunny and when the initial promises that you gave may not play out exactly the way that you said at the beginning, that's when you really need to have surrounded yourself with people that are willing to give you that extra shot and, and that extra time so that you, you can prove uh, that you can actually make it happen. So that, those would be the two. Yeah, it's really... It's really interesting advice because I think a lot of people that I speak to talk about how fundraising is obviously exhausting and uh incredibly time consuming and and certainly you know if you don't have a network it can be there's a lot of um things to find out there's a lot of things to find out when you're in the room and it can be quite intimidating it's interesting that you're saying actually it's really more like a functionality of that growth rather than a kind of moment to celebrate 
And I think it's also really important that you say, understand what you want to do, because certainly at venture stage, it is a hypothesis and the people are really investing in their their confidence in your ability to deliver your hypotheses. So backing yourselves and understanding what you're doing is integral to that. With all of that in mind, um, I might know the answer to this already, but do you ever take time to enjoy the successes and the growth and the moments? And, you know, I guess your definition earlier about people actually enjoying and using the the products and interacting with it but are you good at saying we did a really good job actually this week or is it is it like right okay we've just raised 20 mil let's carry on yeah so um i'm really bad at celebrating anything i'm very conscious <laughs> you of surprised that. me alex <laughs> <laughs> i'm very very conscious of that and i'm 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 very well, first of all, I, I made sure to surround myself with people that can actually celebrate things uh, much better than I do. Um, it's important to know your weaknesses, but also I'm trying to become better at actually identifying those moments and taking a step back. Um, that being said, I still would never, well, never say never, but like I would still not identify a fundraiser as a success moment. Um, I would identify, you know, hitting a few hundred thousand orders in sales, for example, like, you know, those, those kinds of moments where you're like, okay, this is how much value we've now generated for our independent retailers. And this is how many people we've been able to get inspired by, by the products that we're selling. Those moments, uh, I think one of the biggest moments actually celebrated um, was when we had our first retailer that were paying their rent to the money that we were contributing as Truva. Uh, I was like, man, this is like, boom. You know, like that's the existential factor number one that kills these kinds of shops is the rent. So when they can use your platform to cover the rent, like that's, that's just like, oh, that was amazing. That, that moment was amazing. Um, so yeah, I think identifying other types of moments um, and even smaller things. You know, like when someone steps up, just does something unexpected, right? Or um, we have this thing called the Golden Pineapple um, at Truva, where every Friday someone in the team nominates someone else in the team to be the recipient of the Golden Pineapple, which we, it's like this ornament that we smashed a hundred times, but we've glued it together again. It's like another ceramic thing. Um, uh, about like, okay, you've done something exceptional this week or uh, you've managed to make my life easier by just doing this, this and that. Uh, so that kind of appreciation uh, is part of the celebration process, I think, as well. Yeah. Where did the name come from? Where did Truva come from? So it was, the name is, kind of, is from Trouve, uh, which is the French kind of word to find something. Uh, and apparently, I don't know if this is made up, but apparently Truva as a Truva uh, is also slang for lucky find in some areas in France. But that that's kind of a myth. I'm not sure if that's true. Uh. Well, it sounds pretty good. So maybe you should hijack it as, um, you know, as part of the deliberate choice of the word. Um, there you go, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> just last question about money. Where have you where have you wasted the most money? What have you spent money on as a business that perhaps if you could do it again, you wouldn't? Uh, I think 
Just really tough, tough question. Are you going to say your um, your personal expenses account? Nah, I never expense anything. I, I never got into that thing. Um, I I think like if you look at it overall, uh, the biggest kind of investment of mine in a sense, which also is kind of where most money was wasted, is in actually figuring out how to build a marketplace <laughs> and how to build a a high performing team and you know all the mistakes that we did along the way you know because uh, one investor once told me uh, Alex I believe in you I also believe that you're not ready yet to kind of run a business but I'll give you some money and then next time when you want to have more money that money actually will generate some value for me Uh, so it's like this kind of thinking of you know, any entrepreneur that does this for the first time, and I guess second timers and third timers perhaps as well, you will do a lot of mistakes just by the function of figuring out how how to build a business in the first place. Um, is that a waste? Maybe for some that could be waste. Uh, for that, others, it's part of the investment, right? Of like building not just businesses, but also an ecosystem of entrepreneurs that can build other bigger businesses in the future as well. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about building a business? Patience. <laughs> it will <laughs> it will work out at some point. You just have to last long enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's like if you don't quit, right? It's, it's yeah. like as long you as just you be survive. left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like um, someone called it being a cockroach. Uh, I, well, we must be yeah. able to find something more flattering than that. Yeah, I think I think just this, you know, luck comes to the people that chase it. And when you say chase it, it means keep on trying things, not mindlessly, switch your brain on, but keep on trying, right? And then make sure that you have the patience to let some of those bets play out. Keep on trying. At some point, something's going to work out and then you can start pushing it forward from there. So having the patience and the, and the stamina to go through that like, uh, and having someone tell you very early on uh, that that is a thing and you only realizing after like three years that that was right, like that, that is definitely something. Um, yeah, patience. Yeah, because you can, you can be given all the advice in the world, but, you know, you still have to, you still have to live it yourself and trip over For sure. the mistakes. And it, it wouldn't be a journey if, you know, you could, like, mitigate every single issue because you would have a very one-sided experience. So, you know, oh, I think exactly. there's sometimes a rejection of the hard stuff and it's probably really more about mastering it than eliminating it, right? You've just got to kind of suck it up and, and, and smash through it. Yeah, also when you when you read some of the startup books after the fact. So I went through the Lean Startup, for example, eight years ago, nine years ago, and I read it again a couple of years ago. Like I just went through it a little bit and I was like, oh my God, it's all in there. Like there's so many things where I'm just like, okay, this has a completely new meaning now. Um, but yeah, you have to just keep on trying. Um, yeah. What's one of the biggest myths or assumptions that you uh, had about running a business and has it turned out to be true? I thought that I was pretty good at not 
falling into the trap of projecting what I wanted truth to be or what I wanted the experience to be on the people that should actually have the experience. Um, I, actually, I was crap at that. Like, I was trying to persuade myself that the experience that I was building was the right one uh, when it wasn't. Like, people weren't really into that. Um, so that, yeah, that... <laughs> something that I did for myself. I've come, become much better on that one now. But like, well, that's good. Yeah. If um, we, we, you know, the podcast is called The Busyness Podcast. Obviously, everyone is busier than ever. Productivity can be really challenging. Um, everyone's expected to be busy. We're supposed to have back-to-backs in our diary. You know, if you're a CEO, you probably should be busier and more tired and more stressed than everyone else. If you had an extra day, an extra hour in the day, if you could find the 25th hour, what would you use it for? So I, over the past year or so, um, I took the decision that actually the worst thing that I can do as a CEO is having back-to-backs every day, having 24-hour days, like all that kind of stuff. It's just a, the worst thing that I could be doing because that means that I'm not, taking enough time to be looking into the future, the vision, the direction. And I'm not, I got to a point where I was just not calm enough. You know, when you're stuck in the day-to-day, you're taking all these different decisions, how are you supposed to be painting the picture of the future? You can't, right? So I took a step-by-step process of ensuring that I actually create space for myself and I create space and time uh, for me to be able to reflect, to be able to look at the things that we're doing and, and, and actually think about and figure out opportunities of how we can do better. Um, any more time on that kind of, kind of um, process, I think I would, I would use for that because it is really the most important thing I can do. Like a decision that I will take on the shipping model of Truva, that, that is a decision that there's many other people that can take. Um, but when it comes to like how we build an experience that lends itself well to the retailer or the customer in two years time uh, that is probably something that because of the last eight years that I've been in the business is, is, a, is a call that only I can take um, so any type of time I use for that um, Finally, what's next for Truva? What can we expect to see in the next six, twelve months? Yeah, I mean, we're, um, there's some exciting stuff coming up. Um, we are uh, launching our mobile app very soon. Uh, we've taken a long time to make sure that we're uh, launching a proposition that people will love. Um, Christmas is coming up, so <laughs> that is uh, always a, a huge moment for us. Um, and then we've also been working quite a bit on bringing the brands closer to the boutiques, enabling like the Truva exclusives, which are exclusive product offerings that we built with brands and boutiques. Um, the discovery boxes of Truva, there's a bunch of propositions uh, that we are launching on a monthly basis now. So uh, yeah, it's becoming really interesting because we spend a lot of time building up the operations and the foundations of the business. But then at some point, Europe, probably you've got all these different components and you can just very quickly create new propositions such as the Truva exclusives out of it. So much more of that will be hitting uh, over the next few months and years. 
Awesome. Well, I very much look forward to seeing it. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me thank today. You. I I'm a customer of the brand. I will continue to be one. Many, many of my friends are too. I think what you guys are doing for independent stores for the high street is going to have a tremendous impact. It, it already is and will continue to. And I wish you all the best with um, with Christmas and uh, trying to spend that 22 million. I'm sure you'll find a way. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me.